Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm in the new publicist offices in Sydney, and I'm sitting down with Nick Keenan, Chief Executive Officer at Starcom Australia, part of the publicist group of companies. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Darren. Good to be here. And and thank you for the invite. But, uh, you know, one of the things is that there's, when we deal with a lot of companies, a lot of agencies, not many of them have a long-term platform. You know, I can almost name it on one hand. Uh, and, and they're more creative agencies than media agencies, like BBDO, the work, the work, the work, uh, TBWA disruption. But uh, Starcom has actually had a sort of global positioning for, or, or a, a, a way of thinking for quite a while, haven't they? They have. The human experience framework um, has been... Uh, we've had now for over over three three to four years, I think it's been in place. So it's it's certainly been around um, for a number of years, and it, I think becoming more and more relevant as as time goes on. And we certainly noticed that to you know during the COVID period that clients were increasingly talking about the human experience, not just the customer experience. They were stretching that into well, what actually is it that our definition of the human experience that we're offering in terms of our product and service? And so that language. Um, and, and human experience is ultimately built around that tension between a brand need and a customer need and, and trying to find what that middle, that middle ground is that the, with the experience design that you're building into the campaign. And Nick, uh, it could also be because, you know, I think there's uh, some people saying that, you know, a Western society, we've got all the things that we could possibly want. Mm-hmm. That the, really the only thing that left to fulfil us is the human experience, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a really um, that's an interesting point, isn't it? You know, we we're sort of we're in that sort of lap of luxury in, in in a lot of Western society, and we're getting to some really, I think, some in, in really incredible territory. When you look at cultural diversity, when you look at um, you know, we're taking uh, you know our indigenous questions and challenges more seriously, um, and we're generally trying to 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 solve more complex societal issues that have been bubbling away for a long time. Whereas if you go back through the decades, I guess it was all about we need to get the, it was all about the economy and, and, and making sure that we got this consistent established wealth. But yeah, I definitely, I think the human experience now is getting that meaning and value out of, out of life, isn't it? Yeah. And, and would you, or have you reflected on, you know, the past eight or nine months, you know, uh, working in a uh, pandemic, has uh, is, is also reshaped in a way the way people think about the human experience, haven't they? It's 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 one of those um, and disruptive's you know an overused word I guess but it, it's the best way to describe it's one of those where the human race every now and then gets snapped out of its inertia on something something big happens um, you know there's a lot of silver linings in COVID the way I, I look at it for, for me personally and and not this is not to dismiss um, in any way shape or form the obviously the, the awful tragic nature of um, you know the, the lives that it's claimed so. Um, that that first and foremost is something that you know we all have to recognise, even if we're, we're not directly touched by that. We've all had the fear of it with family members potentially, you know, um, getting sick. And 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 I think another interesting reflection on it is that you know, when we talk global warming and we talk COVID, the politicians get out of the way for health and they listen to the scientists. And um, and 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 maybe that's another um, disruptive moment where we'll, we'll start listening to the scientists with a greater level of um, you know getting out of the way and letting them, you know, solve the problem and, 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 and getting us on a path to solving, like what we've done with, with COVID, you know. Mm. Um, 
And then when you look at that in the Australian lens, we've managed that health thing, you know, so effectively, despite the armchair experts pitching in from both sides, um, you know, that centrist view sort of emerged. The scientists would listen to, the doctors would listen to, the health advice was taken and look at our performance versus the rest of the world. But that for me um, is really exciting for, uh, as a human experience in Australia. Um, but if you bring that down personally um, and, and in work, I've spent, you know, more time with my family and kids. I've got into better conversations. I've gone out of the meeting in the conference room, if you like, the virtual conference room to the dinner table where I'm not with no commute and I'm suddenly in a really good conversation with my seven-year-old or my 10-year-old or my 12-year-old. And and as much as we like to think it's quality over quality time, there's actually a familiarity with family which sparks better conversations and a more intimate relationship. And so that's one of the biggest silver linings um, I sort of found when, you know, coming out of COVID. That and, you know, um, COVID kind of got rid of Donald Trump and that was a good thing too. So. <laughs> You know, well, look, you know, there's, well, a, there's a lot to like. Well, I read recently that uh, a whole lot of uh, American celebrities are moving to Australia because they say Australia has handled, and New Zealand, have handled the, uh, the pandemic with a very human focus. But the best quote I thought to sum it up was some, uh, and I can't remember who it was, I just remember it left an impact. They said, economies have a long history of bouncing back. Dead, pe- <laughs> dead people do not. And I thought that really brought it home that, you know, that everyone that's focused on, well, what about the economy? What about the economy? You know, it goes up and down. Yeah. And it's people that drive that economy, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And, you know, if you can't, you know, there's also great quotes of, you know, the true test of society is how much it protects its weak. Um, You know, and and that's an an age-old truism, I guess, that, you know, we, 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 fly off and, and, and ping it around at a dinner party, but how seriously do you take it? And and one of the things I found really interesting in the discussion around COVID when the advocates that were wanting to almost let it rip or, or having putting that position in market that, you know, um, the cost is too high, the cost is too high. It's like, well, do you want to get COVID? Yeah. Or you, do you want to roll that dice? Um, and inevitably no one does because, you know, there are certain age groups that you, you're not guaranteed of getting it lightly. Um, and so that was always an interesting playback of, well, no, I don't. And so, yes, in Australia, we, we put the human experience, um, certainly the human health element first, didn't we? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think one of the things, you know, this is an interesting conversation because we started talking about the human experience company. And I think that, you know, often companies will have a line, a positioning, they'll have a document about it. But I think in some ways, Starcom, you said three to four years ago, this was the line for the global business, but suddenly it's got a context and a relevance that I'd really like to explore, especially as you've recently announced a strategy around people-powered growth. Now, you know, there is a lot of cynicism and you'd be aware of it, not just in advertising, but in the wider uh, marketing community and even the business community about how marketing's great at being creative and coming up with new uh, strategies and ideas. But let's, uh, I'd love to talk a bit about where people-powered growth comes from and what it actually means for all of the different stakeholder groups that you as the CEO of a major uh, media agency Yep. has to deal with because media agencies are the great intermediary, aren't they? You've got very powerful media owners on one side you, and, and with them also the uh, aggregators, I call them. I don't call them media owners because they refuse to take the responsibility of being a media. 
and on the other side, very powerful brands. And you're really, you know, being the the go-between between those, aren't you? Definitely. And look, I think there's, you know, you, you mentioned the cynicism in, in terms of positions in market, and there's a few eye-rolling moments, another agency talking about themselves, another. But look, I, I think I'll, there's a there's a few questions or there's a few points in that that I'll that, I, that you know when we talk about human experience and we talk about having a strategic position in market. The human experience agency, the human experience platform is a strategic framework. And so when I came into this business, it's a very effective one. It's a great way to take a client brief and rinse it through the various different exercises um, to see what is um, what is that brand tension and customer tension where you can get to as many of the relevant eyeballs as possible in a really um, engaging and, 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 a, and a way that gives a even a retail experience. There's an experience there that that we can dissect that brief, we can respond to it. It's a strategic position. What, what, I, what I find with strategy positions like that, they're, they're, they're not great just positions in market for local market, you know, for the agency that's in a local market. So human experience, everyone loved from a strategic proposition. Our clients loved it. Um, it led to great work, but it was also incredibly broad and it didn't have a position in market where you could bring in those different relationships, as you mentioned, the media, um, and bringing together the client, the media, and the agency, and 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 the group and the group services that you've got, in what essentially needed to be a collaborative platform. So our, our position in market, people powered growth, is our definition and interpretation of um, being the human experience agency. So, um, in in the Australian marketplace, we felt that people powered it, it needed a it needed a, uh, a a position that enabled collaboration. So fine to have the technical thinking. But how are you then engaging and and bringing the parties together to do to do better work to actually generally look at and creating human experience for customers and their brands mm. and that comes into what we you know experience design, which is really at the heart and the hub of um, uh, the HX framework and what we're trying to achieve through a collaborative um, form in people power growth. So, people power growth ultimately is a collaboration platform and it's got a lot that sits underneath it. But 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 what powers it um, is interconnected capability training and cro- the, the cross training of staff so that we have a, a agency structure that is cross-functionally operated so you're doing in most departments there's dual capabilities because hx framework would sit in strategy and that work would then hand over to people who are doing things like channel planning and then they've got to do in channel planning the handoff <laughs> the handoff yeah. so we've pulled hx right through the agency structure um and we've done that through um uh, a people power growth platform, which 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 ultimately is about training these guys up and diversifying their skill sets. So just uh, you know, to give me a visual, because I'm quite a visual person. I know I use words, but it seems to me that you're embracing this idea of you know collective hubs in a way. You know, bringing cross functional teams to work together on a problem. You know, in many ways, the highest level of agile is the same thing. Is that part of the vision? It, it, absolutely. So if you see it like we're at the end of the day, we're a project management team in marketing comms, really. Um, we're bringing together different parts. So what will happen if you look at 55% of you know, Starcom's portfolio or even closer to probably 60%, but um, a good majority of our clients have more than one publicist agency working on them. And, and, and ultimately, it's about you've got, without, a, without a collaborative platform and way of working, they're going to operate in their various different um, siloed form until a project team brings that together. Mm. So if you if you take some of the more consulting groups like PwC and Deloitte, what I've experienced on the client side, 
was those projects, the, the, the big initiatives that you were launching in market for the customer. That might have been uh, a whole loyalty program that you were launching, or it might have been um, a JV or partnership that the business had done, um, you know, where, where you're integrating two technologies. Um, and then you're going to go and market to that customer in a consistent way. So they would bring in these, um, it really struck me that the way those teams would come in and embed themselves um, in your marketing teams, in your operations teams, and your technology teams. And they would knit those three, what were incredibly siloed functions in on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on you know, on a client's business. But into um, one team. But into one team. But they've had a long-term uh, philosophy and structure that agencies have never really managed to embrace. And that's the idea of the project sponsor, the project lead and the project manager, right? And when it translates into agencies, the the project lead, the sponsor, sorry, is virtually non-existent. It, it usually feel, falls to the managing director or the CEO or the most senior account management person. But then the lead is usually an account management person and, and the role of account management over the years has become a service one, whereas in consulting firms, it's very much about proper management and driving and identifying obstacles and keeping everyone aligned and, and that type of work. Can that sort of culture translate into agencies? Well, I certainly do. Um, I think with Starcom and being the benefit of publicist group, absolutely. And, you know, we've just hired our first chief client officer, which is um, uh, uh, in Louise Romeo, who's um, you know running the PNG account, um, but also sitting on the um, is on the national exco as, the, as our head of power of one. Now, ultimately, where that's relevant is Louise has um, been trained up in terms of how the creative uh, work that we're doing. So we're carrying the creative. We do the corporate PR. We do the performance. We do the all the transactable media, um, and that's one person sitting across for the brands. Not all of the of the of the twelve and thirty brands that that that, that account has. Um, are fitting into that mold, but but there will be um, a, a significant portion um, of those brands where we'll be doing all of those things. Mm -hmm. That person has to see and learn how the sausage is made in creative, and to bring that together. And very much like I describe in a PWC model, they are the they are the designated group lead, yeah. the project manager, if you like. So they have to learn how the creative messaging comes to the foreground. They also have to work out with the competing interests of strategy teams, and you have strategy and. And this is in this agency village where clients get really caught up. Everyone's trying to outsmart each other. If they've got all these independents running around, my strategy is better than theirs, or this is better for this particular um, campaign that we're running, or this particular product that we're launching. And really, there needs to be one ring that rules them all when it comes to strategy. And that's a and that is certainly um, our best uh, example of, of pulling that through, where you do have one project management lead. The really exciting thing with that, when it comes back to people is that it's a career path. There's a lot of insecurity when you talk to particularly the top talent who are looking at a in media agency land going, well, where does this go in the next years? Because the, the amount of convergence that's happening, the amount of um, the, you know, the traditional ways of um, and the business model of media agencies is evolving at speed is leaving a lot of them open to think, well, you know, am I going to have, is my skill set going to be needed? If I'm just no TV buying, um, am I going to have a future in three to four years? The guy that's doing in-channel planning for um, social media does, but do I? Um, and so you've got to you've got to have a, a agency structure that provides that diversified training and skill sets, and they're going to have to take on multiple roles. Mm. They're going to they'll have a specialism at their core, like we all do, um, and 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 but they have to be trained and developed to have what we call T-shaped talent, broad in knowledge. Yeah. And the best example of that is the one I've given where. 
you've got a chief client officer who's now got to learn, you know, how corporate PR fits into what they're doing and how reactive that's got to be to what we're seeing in market or both positive and negative in terms of that brand. How does the creative, how does the strategy work for the creative production that's been done? And then pulling that through um, into right down to campaign execution. You've also got to figure out um, and you've got to bring the parties together. There is a lot of work that the media partners have done, particularly you know your more traditional businesses that have that are increasingly digitizing themselves and doing successfully. And you know you can you can look at some of the TV networks um, like nine, seven, and ten. They're getting pretty good with an omni-channel platform. Mm-hmm. They've got good content. They've got good audiences, and they're coming in to siloed environments trying to sell an omni-channel um, solution. Yeah, and particularly that they are very much uh, customer focused, aren't they? Because the thing that, you know, I notice at the upfronts that uh, both nine and to a lesser extent, seven and ten, but are very focused on being able to track uh, customer engagement across their multiple channels. Incredibly valuable when it comes to a role of, you know, working out, well, what's the right combination for our client wanting to engage with those people through those multiple channels? And. And, and on, on our side, we need to engage that more and we need to trial it because I think, you know, for a lot of brands, um, it's, it's, they've become very overweight in certain areas, in, um, in certain channels where the buy for expediency, ease of tools and systems that you're using, um, even the Trojan horse mentality that I think has gone on where there are, and whether you call them aggregators or the various different partners, particularly on the tech, the digital side, where they run lots of training and development programs. Um, this is how you get in there and you and you get all these um, these wonderful tools and it makes it easier and there's wonderful automatic reporting. And so what happens is there's an indoctrination where someone goes, oh, well, I, I, I know and trust that system. And it's incumbent upon us to actually um, engage with that, but also look at um, training our staff on some of the omnichannel platforms that we're seeing yeah. with the other networks so that it doesn't become an, a habitual buy. Well, and the danger is that both the main players and and Amazon increasingly are winning the game because they're making it easier and easier. Easier and easier. So where there is an intermediary, like a media agency, that is already time poor, resource poor, often um, uh, fund poor, fee poor, um, if there's a simpler solution that appears to be delivering the results, why would you go elsewhere? Yeah, and that is absolutely the trouble. And and it's good to see that some of the traditional, you know, media owners are starting to look for ways of making it uh, more convenient to interact with their omni-channel offering. Well, they're coming up with training models too. So so people power growth is a collaboration um, framework. Um, it is a cross-functional um, operations and training development program. We're launching the HX Academy. So on that point. We've gone to um, more of the, you know, the, those uh, t- t- particularly the TV networks, and we've we've asked for training modules to go into the HX Academy, and and they are um, they've engaged with that in a, in a fantastic way. So, you know, come January, um, we're have, we, we've got an HX Academy where we yes, they're doing all the digital training and they're learning all of those things, and they're we've got all the training modules that are relevant to us as well. But we've kept, um, you know, thirty percent of the capacity in there to populate it with training modules. Um, and, you know, as recently as um, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Nine have a, uh, a training module that is going to go into the HX Academy in the new year. And we're really excited by that because I think then we're doing the right thing by uh, our clients and our partners by really looking. And, and they're going to make the, uh, the, the, the campaign buying and execution of that a lot easier. So mm. I, I think for, for them, they're, they're really starting to, to um, 
to learn how to sell their product in a, in a, in a better way. Now, I just want to pick up, you talk about it being a collaborative process or a platform, right? Um, and you said, I think it was around 55 or 60% of Starcom's clients are also engaging with other publicist group agencies, creative yep. agencies. Okay, so that means there's 45 to... 50. Digital performance, there's a, yeah, there's a few yeah. in there, yeah. So 45% are also working with other agents, creative agencies, be they independents or inside other networks. Where do you see this role? Is is this out? Does it exist outside of the walls of Starcom? Does it exist outside the walls of the publicist group in Australia? Can it extend out to those companies? And what do you think it would take for non-aligned agencies to actually see the benefit of this? It's, look, it's a great question. Look, we we certainly believe that it extends outside. Um, the walls where we, you know, we might be the only agency with um, it's in their agency village or ecosystem that's publicist, right? And obviously there's forty five percent of those. So um, it it's going to depend on client. Are all of them going to, um, you know, want to want to go into the people grow both platform? Well, may, maybe not. But we're certainly having good conversations at the moment and showing it. You know, it, it's it's not just a high level framework. It's got a lot of detail that sits on and a way of working. So. For example, there are three sort of tranches to um, the campaigns we receive from a client. There's annualised planning. I think you we were discussing earlier, um, you know, uh, it's good when businesses have longer-term strategic thinking. Um, annualised strategy really worries me greatly because you, you never really execute it in time and then you run the danger of ripping up the rule book and starting again the next year and you're caught in this awful cycle of never achieving and a good strategy should stretch for three years at a minimum, in in, in, in my view. That's certainly coming, you know, from client side. And I, I actually have a different view. I think it should be five years. It worries me that the they keep saying the average CMO tenure is uh, what twenty two months or yeah. twenty six months. Because how could you actually execute a proper strategy? You know, a five year plan that gets updated every year but keeps a constant objective is the only way you could actually meaningfully impact a business. Well, when you certainly when you work on, um, and I've had been exposed to um, you know a fair bit of private equity, five year plans and five year EBITDA targets are always the the sort of the accounting benchmark, if you yeah. like, and then they look for strategies for. But it is, I think, the market and 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 just how um, fast some of the transformation pieces are. People get a bit nervous now with the five years. You know, there used to be used to be that great quote I think from Bill Gates that everyone overestimates what will happen in five and underestimates what will happen in ten. I do think it's narrowing, it's shortening. You know, company life cycles, we know the average age in the 50s of a, of a company was, I don't know, 50, 40, 50 years, and that's now down the average life cycle for a company is 15 years in the, in the Forbes 500. So they, they rise up and, and, they, and they get to the top of their S-curve and then they go broke, you know, with a far greater speed than what, what they used to because the market's just, it's, it's become a lot faster, as we all know. So that whether it's three or it's five, long-term strategy is, is, is critically important. And, and, and with the way I look at three, you've, you know, our strategic thinking is certainly get the setup done in year one. Um, I think we went into um, COVID as a business a little unfit, a bit unhealthy. You know, as a, if I give the human um, analogy, our blood pressure was up, our cholesterol was probably pretty bad, our iron levels were off shooting through the roof, and and we've come out of it not with a six pack, but we've we've used that time really well. Not too many COVID kilos around the midriff. No, we did we did a lot of work. We engaged fifty six of you know one hundred and forty staff um, and got them engaged in this whole process so that, you know, they had their fingerprints on the gun, so to speak, and that they bought into the strategy because too often executive teams go off into the room, 
think they've solved the problems of the world, come out and then wonder why no one's going to follow them, you know, over the trench and they just don't understand it. So you, you, you've got to engage them. And most, most good leadership teams, and certainly in, I see it in agencies, should get that and do get that. Um, but it, but it, it is interesting if, you, if, you've, you know, if you've got a client that's got that, and I was, I was talking about annualised planning and the three tranches that we're, we're trying to plan for. So annualised planning, you can, you can schedule. You know it's got a seasonality to it. You know when a and g is going to go into a planning period. You know when an FCA is going to go into a plan. You know when your client snooze. You know they have um, rigorous processes that are well-established. So we're, what we've designed with to bring our media partners, and as part of People Power Growth, we've got a whole program in terms of how we run those annualised plans and we bring the media in upstream to hear directly from the client and we're running workshops together. Um, we can't do it for all media, but we will go through a process of matching the right client with the right media partner in order to run those programs. But we can bring in certainly the majors into that process and we've got that commitment from our clients, the ones that we've talked to. Are you comfortable with that? And there are some environments where you'll need an NDA. There'll be some environments where it's it's confidential in nature. Um, as you would expect, but by and large, you can bring the media into that environment, bring them upstream. Because what happens when that, when if they're, they're such a critically important piece to the ideation, the way that that content could match with the creative messaging, the creatives need to be in that room too. They need to be part of that, so that there is this one ring that one ring that rules them all from a from a strategic point of view, so that we don't have competing strategies. And where to your question, does it go outside? There might be those in the agency believes that don't want to engage and think that it's uh, it, it, they, they come in from an insecure thinking, well, we're trying to increase our scope and, and grab some of their work. But if it's worked through carefully with a client, you're running a, a, a whole project team with multiple parties and at least for annualised planning, you're bringing them together so that for the course of that year, you, you are hopefully all on, on, on trying to contribute to the same thing. And it's easier to communicate amongst one another, media, client, internal agency, external agency. Um, and by doing so, we can be the custodian of that project. We're not going to get it every time, but if we get it more times and with more clients than, 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 than we have in the past, we'll have a very close relationship and we'll do great work. So, Nick, you've uh, spent time on the other side in the hot seat, sitting in the you know, marketing lead role. How much of this approach is actually informed by your experience of being on the other side and looking at your agency roster and, and thinking about, well, if only? It's entirely based off that. I mean, it's look, there's experience on but but that's what, um, you know, I had seven years on, on the client side uh, working at Crown and, and Crown, but as a commercial director, um, and that was a fantastic experience doing a lot of M&A work, launching new digitally-led businesses. It was a lot of fun. It was a hell of a lot of work. And, and, and look, when that business was sold, um, there, was a, there was a sense of accomplishment and a bit of a relief because it's, it's a, it's a, it was a pretty full-on experience. I think I was employee 83 or 86 and we topped out at 400 by the time that was done. So it was like trying to hold on to a bolting horse that was growing so quickly. Our CAGO was 120% every year. Um, and everyone that was involved in that just did a, a phenomenal effort. They took an unknown brand um, into a number two position in the end by the time it was sold to Stars Group. Um, there were so many agencies in the village there. There's so much time I'd see marketing teams trying with the pressure to connect internally to the operations teams. Then, and you'd see the way the, they, the, the time that was left over to deal with the media buyers, um, the media that wanted um, time and attention. And there wasn't um, the project team that, I, that I, I gave you that example where a PwC came in and I saw them bring all these departments together mm. in, a, in, in, in such a wonderful way. And, and, and that was certainly, um, I guess, the first seed of, 
I wonder why they don't do that out in the uh, in the market. Why isn't there a group solution where you know everyone has an agreed scope, so you can get rid of the conflict at least in the short term? It'll it'll always and be a there. way for accounting it. And you've got away from it, and you've got accountability, and and for that period, you'll get that the work will improve significantly, and everyone should get excited about that because people gravitate to success very quickly. They also, you know, will rip it up at the first sign of trouble. So, that that was the first part. Going at Red Rooster with enormous operations teams in QSR restaurants, where you know you're trying to get your drive to times, you know, at that sort of two minutes, two and a half minutes, anything about that, you can track the sales. But it was incredible the time spent by marketing and operations looking at the unit dimensional daily sales figures when really the daily sales figures were basically decided months and months and months and even years earlier in terms of what that brand um, architecture was, what was that brand signature in terms of consideration, all that top of the funnel stuff that we, we talk about in marketing. But but then on the client side, you, you just... you you get so surprised at how addicted you are to that daily unit dimensional, oh, my God, we're down 1%, or, or we're, we're down 2%, or we're up 1%, oh, amazing, we're up 7%. And then there's this, this, this forensic auditing that goes on of trying to find out what happened yesterday versus last year or last week or last month, when really work and try and measure what matters and, and, and pull yourself back from that day-to-day is really difficult on the client side. So... What that means for you know agency partners, everyone's then trying to dance to that drum, coming and going, I've got the answer. And none of them really do. They have a piece of it, right? They have a little bit of it, but 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 ultimately it's it's more of a longer-term strategic uh, process. There is all sorts of variables, but ultimately there'll be three to four to five things that really matter. So I've got a friend who's a pilot, uh, you know, commercial pilot, and he said, no pilot flies on the instruments, as in if you're knocked a slot, you know, you're constantly course correcting. It's a waste of energy because if you're constantly course correcting, you don't know within the next 10 kilometres you're going to get a wind wind jet stream that's going to put you back on anyway. Mm. He said you watch it for trends. You watch it for potential watchouts ahead, but you're not adjusting the, the aeroplane constantly to you know being right on target. And I think that's in some ways what you're explaining here is that when people become so obsessed about the micro measurement, in actual fact, what it should be informing is well, what's you know is this trending to working or is it trending to not working? And if it's not working, then we have a problem. If it's working, perhaps we should be doing more of that. Uh, absolutely, and so that annualised planning, whether it's in a three or a five year strategy, is 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 where you get to play a little bit more upstream, and there's a bit more time, and there's more there's more stepping back to to answer that question, you know, and see what the underlying trends are, and and measure what matters. So we need to bring the key partners in that room at that time with the client, and have a um and 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 generally kick that around in a, in a, in a framework and in a format that doesn't waste time, but. But 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 it is it is critically important that um, that the brands do that for that for that very reason because there are only um, a very few things that that really matter and show the true health of of, of the brand and product and service they have in market. Mm. Look, it's it's really interesting. But then translating that back down to the human experience. Yeah. Okay. Because you know, as soon as we, I find that technology has been a great enabler. But I think it's what drags us away from the fact that at the end of the day, we're talking about people. Yes. So the way we define it um, and the human experience, again, when I came into Starcom, everyone loves it from a strategic. So when you, you, when you put it through 
um, its machinations to respond on a brief. It makes sense, and and but 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 it is incredibly broad. Mm. So your and your question is, well, how do you define that in terms of what you're doing as part of that ecosystem of agencies? What are you? What are you actually doing that's a human experience? Yeah, how so, does it actually so, uh, occur where, where, for the individual? Where is involved? it tangible? Where yeah. does it happen? And, it's, and, and the answer. Because I'm trying to pin you down on this. No, and I'm going to I'm going to give you a okay. definitive answer. Right. So fair enough. And, right. and I've I'll, I'll come down from thirty thousand feet and, and 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 get into get down to the tarmac. So um, experience design is really where um, it comes to the fore. And what we mean by experience design, it's one of these wonderful definitions. Might be asked five experts that are meant to know what exp- and be you know, specialist experience design, you'll get 10 different definitions. But my layman's interpretation, certainly in the last seven months as we've been designing and looking to commercialise experience design, um, is simply this. It's the points of interactivity that are built into a campaign for those that respond to the advertising. And there's various different degrees of how people interact with an advertising campaign. So to give a, uh, a more granular example, um, it's looking at um, an automotive client, for instance, and designing the in-purchase um, survey um, you're going to buy the car. You're sitting there waiting to get your finance checked and you've got time to kill. You'll tick any box just to waste the time. So um, as he's making his phone calls and doing his various different checks and you're, you're hopefully going to get the keys and drive out of there, you'll fill it out. So if you're buying, for instance, if we went to um, you know, a Jeep, for instance, and, and someone nominates they're going to take that car camping as part of that question, whatever we, des- whatever, whatever we design on information we want to grab, then... Then, then that's useful information that we then build into the CRM and we work with their operations department. Maybe we go to an anaconda and we look for promotions for camping equipment. So we start that path to purchase on day one to the next for the next car, not leave it for two to three years. Um, and so that is- And then pop up and go, hi, we're back. Hi, we're back. It's, it's like going <laughs> to, you know, it's like that one night stand at a nightclub and then you see them three years later. Oh, you know, hi, whatever. And and you don't want to be like that with your customer as a brand. You want to, you want to connect with them um, and on a regular basis. And when it's bad strategy and when it's bad thought, that's when millions of dollars gets poured into, a, you know, petrol apps. Now, people buy petrol for convenience. They're not going to drive 50 kilometres because there's two or three cents that the app says, you know, if it's on the way to dropping the kids off to school, great, I'll pull in and I'll maybe I'll notice. But, but we've learned, you know, what's real world application of experience design and what is just someone sitting with a whiteboard trying to come up with a good idea Oh yeah, of course, petrol because it goes into the car, or increasingly, hopefully, um, you know where you plug into a station. But anyway, that's a that's a whole other topic. But but it's experience design is where the human experience, how we we build it into a campaign, and it's the points of interactivity, and that might be a you know an ex um, an experiential event where you you know at the outside the MGG you you're kicking a football into a blow up cup and you're getting people's data and there's there's a product and a promotion you're doing around that, so. Points of interactivity is when human experience um, starts to become really tangible. And so that's why in our agency and what we've changed in redesigning it is that we had great strategy, good strategists doing human experience frameworks, but we didn't have the experience design. Mm. Um, and we've had to bring that, um, we, we, we've got to look to bringing that in um, externally into the agency. And we've also got a couple of people that are very well versed and specialised in that area, and we've got to we've got to train them up on some of the strategy, and we've got to get them to change the strategist to learn more of the experience design, so that doesn't become a pass through to different departments. That it actually is something that is built in, and the account service teams need to be trained on that as well. And where channel planning was done needs to come into the account service teams, and so does in channel planning. And this is where it gets really interesting, more away from I guess human experience, but the in channel planning. If it's not done, uh, an account service team will traditionally just do the channel planning. But then 
oh, in the social media, I need to go over there to a specialist who's going to do the in-channel planning. That's got to be brought and baked into that team. Otherwise, the experience design gets lost yeah. and there's too much pass-through. And that team needs to be schooled and trained up on it. Otherwise, what future does that person have as just being a suit, right? They need to learn that craft. And so you need to really destructure and, and de-silo. Um, um, yeah, because I like your T, you know, the T-shaped talent yeah. is, is the way to do it because, you know, giving people very broad knowledge so that they're able to think, I hate the word, but holistically, you know, that they are able to engage in conversations with specialists and see how all the parts come together. And I think that's one of the things that's been lost, especially in the last decade, is that there's been the rise of so many specialists, but no one or few people that are in a position and have the knowledge to be able to see how they all pull together. Well, otherwise it just becomes, specialisms really, and this, you know, if you get into like the business model of the future, in my, in, just in, in my humble opinion, but specialisms can't be part of, if, if you look at your composition of, a, of an agency in terms of where they make their revenue, a good part of it is on fixed fee. Everyone ran to fixed fee because it's certainty and it's great. But then there's a baked in scope that becomes immovable and unflexible. And I think in marketing way, it's changing so much. That's, a, that's, that's something that you want to, you want to lower that fixed fee remuneration. You want more of the commission-based structure, which everyone was became a dirty word years ago and it, it's gone. The, I think it needs to come back the other way so that specialisms can come in and out. Yeah. And they pay for what they need. And we call it dynamic scaling, which is just a fancy term for we'll, we'll bring someone in on a needs basis so that you... We and, call it value-based pricing. Right. Okay, great. That's a, um, we might borrow that. So value-based pricing. Um, you're not paying for something that you're not using. And, and it also teaches the agency just how much you need of those specialisms and how connected they are to the rest of the team. And also... The people communicating with them need to learn what they're doing because otherwise the specialism isn't accountable. And then you become beholden to specialists and you never want to be, it's like the guy that fixes your laptop, right? If it didn't work and you're stressed that you've got a meeting or you're an email you need to send or whatever it is, and they come in in two seconds, they fix the laptop and you're almost going to give them a big bear hug and you're amazing. And you, it might be his fault in the first place the thing crashed, but you don't know what he does. I don't know what's going on in the background of that laptop, right? To... To, and, and specialisms can, can, that can become like that. Well, and the other danger is that specialists often can't talk to other people because they learn the language of their specialism. And so you suddenly need translators. You know, I've always thought that uh, the best career path for anyone, especially in media, is to work across the disciplines to start with. Work out where their core competency or aptitude is and then really build that depth but then ultimately, at some point in your career, you're going to move on from that back into put, helping pull it all together. Because I think the combination of the generalist and the specialist actually allows you to cope with the complexity that you know, media is all about these days. It's becoming more and more complex. And yet at the end of the day, to your very positioning, you know, it's about people. It's Pl complex ways of engaging with people. People hire people, or, and it will always be that way, and yeah. thankfully so. And that's why, um, and good talent absolutely is critical to that. But 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 of equal importance um, is 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 having the right working processes and, and frameworks that enable them to do their best work and connect. And and there's interdependencies everywhere. And you've got to identify those very quickly. And you've got to, and you've also got to not have it set in stone. Have the strategic thinking, but be tactical enough to. Um, to, to react when, when necessary. And we, you know, people power grow, 
people power growth is a workflow integration platform it's a collaboration platform and it's a and it's a cultural platform that that's those three things and it's number one objective is to offer a client group marketing services yeah that that ultimately is what we're trying to achieve that's what success looks like in three years time and you know when you look at um a uh, a career path which keeps and attracts good talent if i take we've got our chief client officer and we have one of those so um, that's something that we want to become more of the norm. If I'm a client service director and 55, 60% of our portfolio has multiple agencies working on it, if they cross-sell into the agency group, and this comes back to that 45%, their career path, they can grow and become a chief client officer organically by increasing their, the, the agencies within the group. And you're never going to get 100%. You'll get the big accounts that will put all the eggs into one basket, and I think that's going to be that's, that's amazing when that happens and some great work will happen. But not every client's going to be prepared to do that. They're going to want some a bit of competitive tension between partners sometimes. Um, but back to one of your earlier points too, in terms of what I noticed on client side and what you want to see is you can't go to all those meetings. You know, a CEO and that wants to be involved in marketing, they should be and they should value it greatly because ultimately that unit dimensional daily sales figure is going to look pretty awful in 12 months' time if you ignore your marketing department and you're not across it. And if they go rogue or go down a path that... Um, is going to cause long-term detriment to your to to your brand and your sales. Um, so you need an agency village where you're having less meetings. Um, uh, and I think you know, it, and 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 they absolutely have to come in with where you can get a a project team where you can have less meetings, but there's a higher quality of work. And there will be some cost savings in there as well, no doubt. But but there's there's the the digital age has led to far too many specialists popping up just focused in one area, then going in for scope creep, looking to put strategy into it, identifying an opportunity because a relationship wasn't great over there. And you've got, you, you, I think pre-COVID, we got to this combination that was just a lot of people trying to get time for the client. And the client does not have that time to spend. Um, Nick, it's been a great conversation, but we've run out of time. Uh, time flies when uh, you know, it's such an engaging topic. Uh, perhaps we should uh, retitle you as uh, Chief People-Powered Growth Officer um, as you're in charge of uh, this new way of working. What do you think? Or is it a bit of a mouthful? Mm-hmm.